Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. Thank you very much for listening in. Now, as you can tell by the title of this episode, this episode includes and is centred around the topic of conversation of psychedelic drugs. So, if that conversation is going to upset you in any way, maybe this podcast isn't the right one for you at this time. Because the psychedelics... There's something I'm interested in. There are lots of universities, high-level universities over in America doing loads of experiments on the benefits of psychedelic drugs in mental health, whatever type of therapy that may be. And it is a topic that interests me and that is a topic I like to dip my toe into as well as educating myself. And I thought if I'm enjoying it, you guys might as well. But I'm not advocating this. I'm not saying go and grab a load of acid and chuck it on your tongue or go and eat a load of mushrooms. You're all adults listening to this, hopefully. I do mark it as explicit so that I don't have kids listening in. But you can make your own choices. All I would say is if you were to make your own choices, be safe, be sensible and don't abuse something that should be respected. Hopefully, anyone that wanted to opt out of listening to this episode has opted out by by now. Um, this is your last chance because I'm going to get into who sponsors the episode. And then I'll get into my conversation with Adam Strauss. Adam Strauss, he is not an authority on this subject. However, he's speaking from his experience. And he has a show in America called The Mushroom Cure, which is where he talks through essentially the management slash trying to cure his OCD via the use of psychedelic. And he's a really interesting guy. What he had to say was very, very fascinating. It's about a 50-minute conversation. I talk about things that I may or may not have done. If they are potentially illegal, I just want to say that um, I made those bits up just to cover my ass. And, yeah, let's get into it. But first, of course... A word from our sponsors at BetterHelp. BetterHelp provide an online therapy service, no psychedelics included. Um, sorry to say for those of you that would be hopeful. And this online therapy service is not just self-help. It's not a crisis line. Although you can actually be in touch with someone within 48 hours. If you don't like that therapist, guess what? You get to change them. They're all qualified, they're all licensed, and they have helped millions of people around the world. I've had plenty of good feedback so far from listeners of A Need to Read that have used the service, which is great because that means I picked the right sponsor. But if you think the time is right to be looking after your mental health and taking that first step towards getting better, better help other place for you. You get 10% off your first month if you head to www.betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read and the link for that will be in the description but without further ado i'm going to hand over to myself and adam strauss to talk about all things ocd and all things psychedelics enjoy it perfect well yeah just a i'm just going to try and change some people's opinions on psychedelics on the uk essentially that's yeah cool that's, that's what i'm trying to do <laughs> yeah yeah good well i've i've opinion I, I think as a result of, of seeing my show and and knowing my experience and seeing the changes in me firsthand my parents even though they're of the age where they were you know they they, they were the prime age to have done psychedelics yeah. they're both in their 70s so they were they're around at the peak time in in the 60s neither of them have any experience with psychedelics 
Yeah. And unfortunately, due to some health issues, I'd say it's inadvisable for them at yeah. this point. But they certainly have become very, um, yeah, accepting of of the benefits from from my own story and seeing my show, but also also seeing changes firsthand. Yeah. But yeah, my my story was basically, um, I had very debilitating obsessive compulsive disorder for for many many years um it was you know which is which is pretty common with ocd like the best data on ocd is that about half of people with obsessive compulsive disorder don't respond to any sort of pharmacotherapy any sort of conventional psychiatric medications the half who do respond typically they see only about a 25 percent symptom reduction so unfortunately my experience which is i was on every possible medication you could be on for OCD. I saw, I don't know, probably close to a dozen different OCD specialists over the years. And to be clear, some people certainly are helped by conventional therapy. Uh, The data are actually better for um, cognitive behavioral therapy than they are for medication. Medication, the track record with OCD is pretty abysmal. But having said that, I also want to say some people do benefit significantly from medication, from conventional medications for OCD. They're in a minority, but some people do. Uh, but most people don't. More people benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy, but even there, most people who have severe OCD see at best sort of a partial recovery. And yeah. I really saw very little benefit from anything, unfortunately. And then I stumbled across this study. It's still the only study that's been published of any psychedelic for OCD, though now there are two more studies in the works. But this study, it was a very small study, only nine subjects, but the results seem to suggest that, and this was a study specifically of psilocybin, which is the main psychoactive compound in hallucinogenic mushrooms and magic mushrooms. Hmm. So um, yeah, the results were, were, were pretty remarkable. Um, everyone in the study had a significant remission of symptoms. Some people just for you know a day or two, but some people it seemed that it was more of a long long term benefit. And so, even though I had very little experience in psychedelics, I was desperate enough that I, I figured I would try it. So, I embarked, as I like to say, on a program of vigilante psychopharmacology. I tried to cure myself. Yeah. And that's what the show was about. The, sh- the So I, I was and still am a stand-up comic, though, of course, in these pandemic times. I haven't been on stage since March now. Yeah. Um, so I started talking about these experiences in comedy clubs. And it was interesting because people were, were, were pretty engaged just because the story itself was a, was a pretty, I think, a pretty uh, intense story. But it clearly was not stand-up. There was too much story, not enough jokes. So then I turned it into a theatrical monologue, a, a, a solo show. And yeah, that shows The Mushroom Cure. And I've been doing it for quite a while. It's uh, played all over this country. It actually had its premiere in the UK in uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival oh, nice. back in 2013. And um, yeah, and I, you know, I... I uh, I'm not averse to giving too much away. I will say the show is called The Mushroom Cure because it's the story of me looking for this sort of absolute cure, which is very much an OCD trait to kind of look for, you know, this black and white thinking. And that's how I was looking at it. I was looking at it as if, you know, if I can do the right dose of the right psychedelic in the right setting, I'll have this perfect experience and I'll cure myself. 
Mm. And it didn't work out that way. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's often the case, isn't it, with <clears throat> stuff like that. People are trying to put square peg round hole as opposed with psychedelics. It's kind of one of those things that you just have to let. You have to just let it be and let let sort of surrender to it, as it were. Yeah, that that's a that's a, the key word I think is surrender. So I was looking at it as kind of like you said, it's sort of like a control thing. Like I'm gonna, this will be a, a, the ultimate way to control my OCD, and, and ultimately it did help significantly with OCD. But as you say, it was more, less of a you know originally controlling it and more of a surrendering and allowing and letting go. Which with OCD, it's worth saying that actually is the way to freedom with OCD, even with cognitive behavioral therapy. The idea with cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which generally we can talk more about it, but it's not so much you're going to try to control your OCD symptoms. It's more that you're going to allow those obsessive thoughts and those compulsive urges to be there without trying to control them. It's very counterintuitive, especially for someone with OCD, where OCD, I look at it as an addiction to control, really. Mm. Yeah. I um, So I, I have act therapy ac oh yeah like an yeah 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 and commitment so it's just sort of letting letting stuff come in being okay with it and then getting on as opposed to trying to like wrestle with the whatever it is for me like anxiety and depression not, not necessarily anything like obsessive but as opposed to like wrestling with the fear of what might happen or the sadness of what's happened before just allowing that to be there and like giving yourself space to process it and then move on without kind of like judgment yeah act is great that was so the the main form of cbt that i did was act and so yeah so the tricky thing for me with act is a lot of the a and act is acceptance and act has all these great techniques to facilitate acceptance with the breath and visualizing things but acceptance is a tricky thing because it's not really something. So I understood intellectually that if I could accept my unwanted obsessive thoughts and compulsive urges, they wouldn't control me the same way because indeed it's the trying to control that is the OCD. So I understood this in my mind, but acceptance really is not something that you do with your mind. It's more of a sort of a physical, or you could say even a spiritual thing. Like you said, it's this surrender, this letting go. So Act kind of gave me the template for acceptance, but it was actually while using psychedelics that I first had the real experience of acceptance. But it was during those psychedelic experiences that I actually referred back to the work I had done with Act. Like I would be tripping mm -hmm. and something would happen, an emotion would arise or an obsession would arise that I didn't want to be there, but I would use these Act tools, breathing in the emotions I didn't want to be there, that sort of thing. And I found that they worked when I was tripping in a way that they never did when I wasn't tripping. And then gradually over, you know, quite a few trips, I started to learn how to apply the same, the same acceptance when I wasn't tripping. It was kind of like tripping sort of gave me in that psychedelic state, I first had a real taste of acceptance. And once mm -hmm. I'd had that taste, I sort of knew what I was aiming for even when I wasn't tripping. So that was one way psychedelics were very, very helpful was in conjunction yeah. with act yeah definitely I've, I've found that myself i've, I've recently done dmt and I've, I've oh had, yeah that's that's one you really like have to surrender to you and obviously yeah. the whole point in that is letting go and 
I've done it now a couple of times. And the first time I really was kind of holding myself back. And then I kind of referred to like what, what I'd been through with therapy, like you say about acceptance and just being like, okay, this is it. Like, you're absolutely fine by the way, Ed. And this is, this is where it's going to go. And you just have to let it go there. And yeah. it was at that point that things got like better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is true of psychedelic experiences and also very often true of life is it's this it's a cliche, maybe not quite a cliche, but sort of a bit of a, a bit of a truism, but this idea that, yeah, letting go ultimately can lead to freedom. But it's, you know, again, it's tricky because we hear these things, but what does letting go actually mean? It's not, you can say in your mind, oh, I'm not going to try to control this. But when you have these very deeply rooted patterns of trying to control our experience, it's, you can't just consciously say, oh, I'm just not going to control. I mean, maybe some people can, but I would say those are probably the people who don't develop OCD or don't develop clinical depression. For yeah. those of us who kind of go down that rabbit hole, it's, um, we may want to accept, but how to actually do that is something that, yeah, it's a specific skill that is, you know, that th that can be, it's sort of hard to feel your way around to it because it's not just a mental thing. It's more of, as yeah. I said, a physical or spiritual thing. And I think that's where psychedelics can be really helpful, but act can also be really helpful for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because there'll be people listening that would never ever want to touch psychedelic in their life. And that's absolutely fine. Like it's the people, it's their prerogative. I think for me, when it comes to like acts and stuff like that, readings helped me learn to let go. There's a story mm -hmm. that I read in Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth of there's this uh, a type of bam, um, baboon in Africa and they hunt it by putting bananas in a, um, like a, what was the word? A vase. Uh -huh. Monkey goes in to get the vase, closes its fist, and as its fist shuts, uh -huh. it's uh, it's like an old it's an old Zen story, and the fist is too wide to come out of the hole of the vase, so it wants the banana so much it won't let go, so it then can't escape. So they then wow. track it down and beat it. So the story is the monkey would have survived if only it could just let go, and then it'd get his hand out and it would have protected himself. Um, but yes, it's, what was it like in, in terms of you, you said there was multiple trips um, that you'd done. At what stage was it that your OCD started to get better? And, and then prior to going down this sort of path, what was your main sort of obsession? Because I think a lot of people see OCD as like, oh, someone has to turn the light off four or five times before they leave a room. And from my experience and what I've, I've heard about it, that's, that's not the case. Yeah, it, it, I mean, for some people that, that is the case, but that wasn't mine. So, well, I'll address, I'll address your questions in order. So in terms of psychedelics, um, actually, let me flip it because I think it'll work better. If, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So the symptoms for me, and, and I would say, to be clear, I, I am not cured. OCD is still a factor in my life, though much less frequently, much less frequently. Mm. And when it crops up, I don't go as, as deep into it. So it takes mm -hmm. over less often and it's less, um, it's less all consuming. Uh, but when it does flare up, it can be quite unpleasant and it can sometimes be debilitating. The differences between, whereas before it could be, you know, really just knock me out of commission for honestly weeks at a time. 
now it's typically okay. I have a few hours, sometimes a day where I'm really getting into it and kind of really, you know, really getting fixated, but I know what I have to do. And what I have to do is exactly what that baboon does, which is let go. And in the context of OCD, what letting go means for me is it means accepting that, okay, I, I'll just, I'll try to work with your, your analogy on the fly because I really love that. I'd never heard that before, <laughs> the banana thing. So the banana for me, and I'd say for everyone with OCD, is this feeling of certainty or security or safety, this feeling of, oh, I've got it right. So I look at OCD as, as I said, an addiction. This is not my own novel thought. This is a lot of people who know a lot more about OCD than I do uh, view it this way. And I've certainly been influenced by reading and hearing others talk about it. So I don't want to claim credit for the addiction model of OCD, but I think it's a pretty brilliant way to look at it. Where if you look at an addiction, what is it? At root, it's an attempt to avoid pain that works in the very short term. That's why it's reinforcing. But then, then in the mid to long term, it actually creates more pain. So let's look at the uh, classic example of an alcoholic. They feel shitty. Uh, they have a drink. They may feel a little bit better. They have another drink. They feel even better. They have another drink. They feel better. But then the next day or when the alcohol wears off, they feel worse. They feel even worse than they felt before they started drinking. So what do they do? Well, they do the thing that made them feel better last time. They drink more. And the more they drink, the more, the worse they feel because in addition to just the, you know, temporary feeling bad of having a hangover, you have life, life consequences of, oh, you wrecked your car because you were driving drunk. You got fired from your job. That makes you feel even worse. Now you're anxious because you don't have a car and job. So what do you do? You drink more. So yeah. with OCD, it's this, the, the, there may not be a high per se, like there is with alcohol or cocaine, but there is, I would say, sort of a high of relief, a feeling of, uh, I've gotten it right. So someone who, let's say, mm -hmm. let's use your example of someone who flips on a light switch. Often what they're looking for is there's a fear of, well, counting is a slightly different, but I'll, I'll use this. I'll use the example of someone who, let's say they have to make sure the stove is off. They're worried that they've left the stove on. They're going to burn down their house. So they check the stove. It's off. They feel a little bit of relief. They start to leave their apartment or flat. I'll, I'll make it, I'll make it, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll make it, I'll make it Brit friendly. They start to leave their flat. Um, and then they think, oh, wait a second. You know what? But maybe when I turn to leave, like my, um, my elbow jostle the knob. Like I know rationally it probably didn't happen, but what if it did happen and you know, it's just not worth the risk. So they, they start feeling anxious as they contemplate the possibility that the stove isn't off. So they go back in, they check the stove was off. They feel a little bit of relief. They leave again. This time they get to the front door of their building, but then they think, oh, you know what? I didn't, I don't know if I really heard the click last time. I think I did, but maybe I'm confusing it with the time before I shouldn't risk it. They get more and more anxious. Yeah. So every time they check, they get a little bit of relief, but it doesn't last. And meanwhile, the real source of anxiety in their life starts building because you could lose your job. If you're chronically late for work, you can, yes. uh, so in my case, the OCD operated in the realm of decision-making which is actually a fairly common symptom for people with OCD. Most people, it's not their main one. For me, it was. So basically, mm -hmm. I would say, well, at its worst, let's, let's use this example. I'd be deciding what shirt to put on. And I'd put on a shirt, and then I would think, oh, wait, there's some problem with this shirt. It's too hot for today, or it's too cold, or there's a stain, or it doesn't fit right. Whatever it is, I'd have my mind would come up with some problem, and I'd feel anxious. So I'd 
So I'd change the shirt and I'd feel a little bit of relief, but then I'd find a problem with that one and I'd feel anxious. So I'd change back and I'd feel a little bit of relief. And meanwhile, you know, life is going on and I'm spending all my time locked in my apartment, changing my shirt or walking down the street in New York city and walking from one side to the other. So I can get on the side that has the most trees, but there's not enough sunlight and just this real, uh, yeah. But it wasn't good for your laundry either. <laughs> no. It, well, sometimes I wouldn't wash shirts so that they, you know, they didn't get faded. I had a very elaborate system, yeah. um, which is often what people with OCD do is they come up with systems for checking, for cleaning, this attempt to try to control more, but it doesn't work. So the overall pattern in OCD is you're, you're trying to get this feeling of relief or of getting it right. And you do get it some of the time when you engage in your ritual but it doesn't last. You repeat it or you don't get it, in which case you try again to get it. So either way, you get trapped in these rituals and the real source of anxiety with OCD ultimately is not the fear that you've left the stove on or the fear that you're making the wrong decision. In my case, it's the fact that your life is spiraling out of control because you're locked in this repetitive behavior or thinking pattern. There's people who have what's called puro where there's not an obvious behavior, but either way, you're essentially you know, it's like the rest of the world is going by, but you're, you're on pause or you're maybe yeah. a better metaphor would be like one of these, um, I don't know how old you are, but like CD players that would skip, you're yeah. skipping, you're caught in the, the song is still playing, but you're caught skipping over this, you know, one, four bar passage again and again, and life doesn't work that way. So you yeah. start losing real things of consequence, you know, relationships, jobs, hobbies, everything that you value. Yeah. And, that was uh, that was my experience is just trapped, getting continually trapped in every decision to the point that I really just I couldn't function. Yeah, it's some um, for me, I, I see it as quite potentially like a common thing, OCD, to, uh, and yeah. as, as if we were to say it as, as a spectrum. Yes. And, um, yeah. I think it damages people because they're the, the like probably the biggest um, symptom of OCD is being late maybe mm-hmm. because it, it certainly stops yeah. you obviously from functioning and getting to these places which then people it's people's perception of that lateness if they're not willing to accept someone has OCD they'll think oh they don't respect me they were late or they don't they're disorganized they're late when really like someone with OCD is probably living in this organized chaos of, of trying to get everything in order but can't quite get it there in time Yeah, that certainly is very common among people with OCD, tardiness. And for the record, for your listeners, I think I was two or three minutes late today, but I swear it was not OCD. (laughs) I'm I'm just joking. I I think I was. (laughs) You were bang on time. (laughs) Almost two on time. (laughs) It was, I think I was a few minutes late. It was was me looking for my microphone, but no, absolutely. I was, and as a stand-up comic, this was a big problem because you have, you know, you have a set time. I'm on stage at 8.20. Uh, however, I, I will say, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, that, that is, I'll just leave it at that. It is a common thing with OCD is, yeah, just getting, you know, spending massive amounts of time on trivial things. So in terms of psychedelics, I, I'd really reached this point of desperation where just nothing was working with any sort of, nothing was working, full stop. Um, and so... The journey with psychedelics for me, and I'd say it's, it's an ongoing journey. I still do use mm. psychedelics. Um, I went through a period where I didn't use them for a few years because I felt like I'd kind of gotten what I needed. Then I began, well, let me start at the beginning. So 
as we said, I was looking for sort of this perfect trip. That didn't happen. But what did happen is, well, very much like you were just saying, Ed, you know, when you were talking about your DMT experience, where it's kind of like you sort of have to surrender. Otherwise, the way I look at it is it's, it's almost like, um, it's almost like, eh, that's probably a, too abstract of a metaphor, but essentially psychedelics, I think one of the ways they can be helpful and were helpful for me is almost forcing surrender because I had experiences that were very intense and I tried to control, meaning that I tried to kind of, yeah, not let my mind go wherever it was going to go, really try to sort of control my experience. Like, oh no, I don't want to think about that. Or there's a sense of, oh, there's something scary lurking beneath the, su the surface of my subconscious, subconscious, and I can't go there. If I go there, it'll destroy me. Yeah. And I had those sort of trips and they were extremely unpleasant. And, and so I learned by trial and unfortunately error that when I got into that place with psychedelics where it felt like things were overwhelming, just kind of let go, let, let the current carry you when you're carrot, where it's going to carry you. It's, it's sort of like being trapped in a riptide, you know, at yeah. the, at the ocean where if you try to fight against it, you're going to get pulled over. Whereas if you just let the current kind of carry you out, then eventually you can sometimes find an opening in the waves where you can, you can, you'll find your way to shore eventually most, most often. So, yeah. So yeah. Like, my, and there were, so it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't, I mean, and that's something that, again, that's certainly cliche go with the flow and it's easy to say. And it's the sort of thing where if someone had said that to me before I started working with psychedelics, I would say, okay, that sounds good. But what does that mean? How do you go with the flow? You know? Yeah. Whereas I'd probably want to, I'd want like a 15 point list of exactly how to go with the flow where yeah. psychedelics, it's almost like a, a, an experiential training for that. So it wasn't like, I had one, you know, climactic trip that fixed me, but there were a number of trips of really, yeah, that experience of surrendering, of seeing my, my fear, uh, whether it was OCD fear or more general fear or fear of the trip itself, fear of, oh my God, this is really intense. I don't know how it's going to go. And just kind of saying, okay, um, you know, whatever happens, happens. Uh, I'm, I, yeah. I can't control this. So I'm just going to surrender surrender at a physical level, relax as much as I can and trust. And finding that when I did that, there was a freedom there yeah. that was, was very new for me. And then gradually learning how to do that same thing, that same, just kind of allowing whatever's happening to happen in my body, allowing the thoughts to be there, or allowing the physical sensations and emotions to be there, learning how to do that when I wasn't tripping. And so it was, you know, I, I, it was about two years of using psychedelics pretty aggressively, which is not necessarily what I would recommend to other people, no. but I was approaching this as someone with OCD where it was kind of like this. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fix myself. It was a bit of an yeah. obsessive quest, honestly. Yeah. The irony. And then once I did, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, and predictably, I should say this, I had some pretty terrifying experiences. I had one experience I talk about in the Mushroom Cure where I called 911 on myself, uh, which is the equivalent of, I think it's, is it 999? What's the emergency yes, yeah, services yeah, number in the UK? UK. Yeah, <laughs> so, which is, yeah, so 911 in the States. And I called not because I wanted police to come to my house, which is what wound up happening, but because I had some burning existential questions and no one else was picking up their phone. <laughs> and so, <laughs> is it... 
<laughs> yeah. What were the questions? The first question, I have a transcript of this call. Um, and the first question is I asked the 911 operator if, uh, if she's God. <laughs> so... Nice. So that's how it, it uh, that's how the call started, and it ended with them showing up at my place. I did not give them my address; they asked for it, but I was calling from a landline, and they traced the call. Okay. So, I, I won't reveal everything that happened with that episode, but um, but suffice to say, yeah, I had some pretty harrowing experiences, but gradually I did find more freedom, and then I reached a point where I felt like, okay, I kind of got what I wanted to get from this, what I needed. And it felt self-indulgent to continue using psychedelics. So I, I stopped for a few years. And then in the last few years, I, I've, um, I've been working with ayahuasca a fair amount, um, mushrooms some. And yeah, I, I would say my use probably, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four times a year. Over yeah. the last few years, on average, is is either I, I either ayahuasca or mushrooms have been the two that I've 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 been working with, and um, yeah, and it, it's still it's definitely a part of what I would consider my ongoing OCD recovery. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's nothing new, psychedelics, and that's something I've been learning quite recently. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the immortality key. Um, Graham oh. Hancock did. Oh yeah, I know. I no, yeah. I what what is that? It's, it's a, a one guy's quest. He's never touched psychedelics in his life because he wanted to keep his legitimacy whilst writing the book. Um, and his name escapes me. It's Brian Mermaseki or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and he basically went on a quest to look at psychedelics in the origins of religion and Christianity. And his quest takes him all over Europe, specifically like Greece and Italy, because there was a, a temple called Eleusis. Yeah. Um, around 400 AD with a, a load of priestesses that would um, get ergot, which was a fungi that grew on barley and wheat. They'd make it into this potion and people would go drink this potion and they'd be in touch with the divine, which of course, anyone that's done psychedelics in the past, like you do, you feel some sort of connection to something that's inexplainable. Yeah. And he, he looks like quite deeply into that in terms of how that influenced religion. And it turns out around the time that Jesus was or was not alive and, and died <laughs> just after that is, is when they kind of shut down Eleusis and at about 400 AD, was when Christianity is pretty much stamped all women out of out of the church, apart from nuns, but no like high priestesses or anything like that that were there before. Um, but it was it was a key part in, I would say, and at risk to offend any Christians, but like it's in a book that I didn't write. The cult of Christianity started through these mass ceremonies of psychedelic consumption, and they'd found they'd got these chemical archaeologists who found traces of THC in the, uh, I, I don't know what the name of it is, but you know, when they swing sage in, mm -hmm. um, in churches, there's a lot of traces of THC in there. So my short summary of the first part or first quarter of this book is that they got a load of people really, really high and just told them about this new God that was there, yeah. this new way of thinking. And I think it's similar to Charles Manson, like people are going to believe you when, when they're, in that zone that they like they just want to attach to an idea because that's well, obviously the, the dangers of psychedelics is if you've got a psychopath at, at the head that's telling you something that 
isn't true. For sure. It's interesting you make the Manson comparison because, of course, Manson and, and the Manson family were, were using LSD quite a bit. And ergot yeah. is, LSD is derived from ergot. It's a synthetic mm. derivative that, and yeah, the Eleusinian mysteries. It's interesting. So you're, you're talking, as you're talking about it, because I, I have read it, I'm not familiar with that particular book, but that theory is one I'm familiar with. And I thought it was a little bit more circumstantial and speculative but maybe there is it sounds like there may be more data now that uh yeah, it seems pretty solid um yeah because I, I listened to him on him and graham hancock went on joe rogan i listened to about three hours and i was like that's probably the best three hours i've spent in the last like two months is listening to that so i've got the book but it's it's very data heavy so i'm taking it in like 25 minute chunks on audible yeah um because i couldn't get a hard copy in the uk for some reason but um just on on the subject of of books, and then we'll get back to obviously your experiences there. You, you mentioned about how to change your mind on an email, um, which is a book that I have and I haven't haven't touched on. But at what stage was it that you read that book, and in and what way did that influence your journey? Oh, that was much later. That was so. I I started my experiences were about a decade ago. Is when I started doing this. Um, and I even first did the show in Edinburgh the first time, the early version in 2012 and they did 2013, whereas how to change your mind came out in 2018. So, um, it's, it, I think it's a great book. Um, and I actually have gotten to, to become pretty close friends with Michael Pollan cause he saw me doing the mushroom cure in 2018 and then sent out some nice tweets and then actually reached out to me with, and I appreciated this. He, he sent me an email. We didn't know each other saying some very nice things about the show, but also offering some very uh, a good constructive criticism, which nice. I, I think is unusual that some will take the time to do that. And his criticism was spot on too. It was actually helpful to hear it. So I think it's a great book. It's the one I would recommend first and foremost to anyone looking to familiarize themselves with the space in terms of, to be clear, he focuses on the history of psychedelics in the Western world particularly the US, which is a very recent history. You're talking about from basically, well, Albert Hoffman discovering LSD in whatever, 1943, I think, 41. Yeah, so, yeah, or something, something like that. Is yeah, so it's, it's a, yeah, and Gordon Wasson, mushrooms in Oaxaca in, in, the, in the 50s. So to be clear, when I say Pollen's book, it, it's a great overview of this very small, recent portion of psychedelic history, because obviously, as you were just saying, you know, whether or not the Eleusinian mysteries were the basis of Christianity or not, there, there certainly is, I think, very compelling evidence that psychedelics have been, have experienced widespread use throughout human history. Mm. Um, and, and I personally do believe, whatever the evidence may be, that yes, I think psychedelics were the basis of, of, uh, of religion. Um, yeah. And I certainly have gotten a lot more out of reading religious texts since my own psychedelic experiences. So there's a great lecture. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. Uh, Jonathan Ott, O-T-T, -T, has a lecture called The Pharmacratic Inquisition, which I think you can find it freely online. It was recorded probably a couple of decades ago, I'm not sure, but where he outlines this really compelling case for the psychedelic basis of religion. Mm. And I, I heard that years ago and it made a big impact on me. So, but yeah, Pollen's, Pollen's book for me personally, it was my, my journey was already, you know, 
not You're completed, but well underway. But yeah, but but just I think it's a great overview and a really fascinating overview of just the characters and the stories that have defined this this movement in in America and the Western world since you know over over the past several decades for sure. Yeah, how many, how many states are like is psilocybin for an example how many states is that legal in currently it's not legal in any states but it's well so and i'll have a different answer for you tomorrow at this time since it is election oh, yeah. day <laughs> so decriminalization is is different than uh legalization so legalization like obviously it's legal for me here i'm 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 imbibing a substance right now i'm drinking a cup of h2o mm. which is a substance and a fully legal substance um so there's no place in the states where one can legally do psychedelics, but it has been decriminalized in a bunch of regions. For example, the first one was uh, Oakland, California, I believe. Uh, Denver has decriminalized. So what decriminalization means is, yes, this stuff is still illegal at the federal level as well as at the local level. In Oakland, California, or Denver, Colorado, the, the local laws do prohibit use of this stuff. But by decriminalizing them, they're basically saying, they're telling law enforcement, this is a low priority. Yeah. This is not something that you should be expending resources on. And it's a toe in the, you know, it's, it's a kind of a toehold to legalization. Yeah. And so there's a number. So Oregon has a decriminalization ballot. Washington, D.C. has a decriminalization ballot initiative. I believe there's, I don't know, a, a half dozen or so, it might, might even be more, uh, some at the state level, some at the city level, but decriminalization ballot initiatives on being voted on today. And I haven't been following it super closely, but I believe some of them are expected to pass. Oh, so cool. yeah, it's, it's changing quickly here in the States, very quickly. And yeah. I know in the UK, there's been a movement to reschedule psilocybin to take it into a less restrictive schedule. I think, I think so. I look, I'm, I know one of my, friends therapists is looking has has signed up to be part of using psilocybin like in therapy mm -hmm. um and stuff like that so uh, that's that's one reason that i'm so interested in it because i've read so much about the benefits of of use in well, like just day-to-day -day normal therapy but there's yeah. studies where they like use that like end of life people take psilocybin and like their practice of surrender because i guess that's kind of what it is it's it's putting surrender into practice yeah that's, oh, that's a great way to put it, it. yeah um and and like a therapy so the, what was that? in the immortality key there was a woman who was who was about three months to live with cancer and she had this crippling anxiety she just couldn't get over the fact she was going to die and couldn't get over it which i guess would be quite common if you're faced with death whereas she then went and did a study, took some psilocybin, and then afterwards was absolutely fine. There was no fear at all. And I think, I guess when you have a, a dose enough and, and you do surrender, things do seem a little less scary in day-to-day -day life. Yeah, well, I think at the very least, I agree. Often they do seem less scary. And I think a lot of that is because what we're scared of is not just the feared outcome, but the loss of control. And so by surrendering, you are no longer trying to control. 
and that's what's I, that's what's so destructive with addictions is like this is something that surprises a lot of people, but heroin itself is actually not a terribly dangerous substance. There's a danger of overdosing, absolutely. Mm. Um, and there's a danger of withdrawal, but people, you know, in, in places like Portugal that have done decriminalization, where you're getting a consistent, um, I don't want to speak about this as an authority because I'm not an authority, yeah, but, but, but basically so much of the harm of addiction does not come from the substance itself particularly with, again, heroin is a good example of a substance that if you, if you have a consistent, um, pure supply of heroin and you're doing consistent amount, it actually, people are surprised to hear this. It is not organically unhealthy. It's not going to, it's not correlated with like bad health outcomes. What's mm. correlated with bad health outcomes are withdrawal, overdose, all of that stuff. Yeah. And, and ultimately the behaviors though, that people engage in around their addictions to gratify them, um, yeah can be very dangerous. So I guess that, I don't know if that applies exactly to, to what we're talking about, but the idea that, um, that yeah, this, uh, this trying, yeah, I guess that's a little bit of a, that's not exactly the same thing, but the point well, I, I, yeah, yeah that, I, that ultimately, I, the, the, so ex trying to control often causes, trying to prevent something from happening that you don't want to happen, um, or trying to make sure something happens that you do want to happen. All these control strategies are ultimately often more destructive than whatever the thing is or cause more distress than the thing you do or don't want to happen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, um, it's, it's interesting that you said that about heroin. I think there's, when, when you think about it now, because I've, I've never heard that kind of analogy that it's, it's not necessarily that that's bad for you because it's just everything that you associate with it. You associate with heroin and people being like super skinny, homeless, doing terrible things to get yeah. the money, to get the drugs and, and that addiction. And then obviously when you see in films, people withdrawing, all the sweats, the pain that they're going through, that's what you associate with it as opposed to just the thing itself. It's like people, people still think that marijuana is bad in, in some places, but... It, bad people can do drugs and good people can do drugs and I, I say the term drugs like loosely and when yeah. it comes to the laws one thing that's strange for me is like the, with acid and like most psychedelics they think oh all these people are going to go mad and they're going to start killing people it's well hold on we've got laws that prevent people doing those things anyway Right. There's, there's laws that prevent sober people killing people. So it's not going to be any different for someone that is in a, an altered state. And there's going to be bad people that do it. There's going to be good people do it. Absolutely. And it's worth saying the data on that for psychedelics. So we, interestingly, we have, we know a lot more about the risks of psychedelics than we do about, and about psychiatric medications. For example, I was on, Prozac, Paxil, Lexapro, Zoloft, Effexor, Lamictal, all these things I was on. And we have very little knowledge about the long-term risks because to get approval for those, the FDA approval uh, in the US, I don't know what the corresponding agency is in the UK, but basically to get government approval, you just have to show safety data for like eight weeks. Uh, wow. Whereas psych yeah, psychedelics, we know the long-term effects because ironically, because these drugs were demonized, there was so much money spent studying the supposed harms of these drugs that we actually know that the harms are relatively minor in most cases. And it's, and it's yeah. actually sped up legal approval. So here in the States, um, 
MDMA has been given breakthrough therapy uh, approval for breakthrough therapy designation, meaning it's, it's kind of fast-tracked for PTSD. And yeah. part of why that happened was there have been all these studies where researchers, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and even more recently, where researchers were trying to look about, look for how harmful MDMA is, and they generally didn't find it. Now, MDMA can be harmful if overdone, mm. much more so than classic psychedelics. But even yeah. MDMA, if done in moderation. Um, so, so yeah, the actual, you know, the fact is, people don't take LSD and jump out of windows because they think they no. can fly. People don't take mushrooms and, you know, uh, whatever, go on a rampage. The safety profile of this stuff is actually very, is actually very high, which doesn't mean that they shouldn't be used with a great deal of respect and, and, and caution. Of course, this is, yeah. these can occasion these powerful experiences, but, um, but the risk, the risk profile is favorable versus a lot of prescription drugs that, that people take without thinking about it. Yeah, definitely. I like that word respect. I think that's probably the the key word the respect and caution because you you have to realize this thing can alter your state of consciousness and you will see things that you can't see normally if you shut your eyes like you will see things you could never imagine and you you've got to be careful i think like and like you say respect it um one thing i i'd just like to touch on um and i know you said you read the book quite a long time ago but it was the breaking open the head you said you'd read that about 10 yeah. years ago, which I, does that coincide to when you went on this journey? Yes, it does. Um, it does very much so. So yeah, that book was influential. It was by a guy named Daniel Pinchbeck, um, who, who's also become a friend in full disclosure, but really Almost. it was his journey of trying different psychedelics and kind of, for me, it was the first it, it was the first time really reading about these experiences. He's a very good writer as well. So it, I, it's hard for me to say exactly how it influenced me because I was already committed to trying to cure my OC with psychedelics at that point. Yeah. But it did open my eyes to the range of different psychedelics that are out there and some of the differences. He talks about Iboga, which is one that I've not tried, though I am curious to try it. He talks about, I believe he talks about ayahuasca, which I certainly hadn't done at that point in time. Various synthetic research chemicals invented by Alexander Shulgin, um, which I did wind up having a fair amount of experience with. So, yeah, I wish I remembered the book better, but what I remember mm -hmm. clearly is... It was it was eye opening just hearing someone like a really good writer because unfortunately I think a lot of the psychedelic genre has been you know people online on Arrowhead and uh, listen I've read tons of trip reports and something can be fascinating but a lot of them can be kind of the, these sort of bloated you know poetic fantastical it's kind of like telling someone about your dreams it, it may be very significant to you but it's it's often not that interesting to other people so yeah it's always boring when someone <laughs> says oh i love that i don't know if you've watched it but ricky gervais's afterlife there's a no no um it's an excellent yeah. series but his assistant comes up to him at work and says oh i'll tell you about this dream that i had last night and he goes oh i don't know if it was a uh, emmanuel kant or seneca that said it but whoever tells you about their dreams is really fucking boring <laughs> <laughs> it's it is but uh 
But yeah, no, breaking open the head. I, I actually, I should probably reread it because it, it was, it definitely made a strong impression on me. And I guess it affected my, my sort of own journey just in the sense of reading about someone else kind of, Daniel Pinchbeck wasn't trying to cure OCD or any particular condition, but he was driven by this sort of existential curiosity, which was part of what motivated me as well. And I think is what motivates a lot of people with psychedelics is this sense of, okay, we live our lives in a certain kind of mode of consciousness, mm. but there's a sense of there's something more going on here often that I think a lot of people have. And to me, you know, some people will say, oh, you should only use psychedelics in, you know, for therapeutic use. I don't agree with that at all. I think curiosity, I think is a perfectly valid reason. I think we're yeah. on this planet for a limited amount of time. And for some people, and I very much consider myself one of those people, there's just this drive to want to experience different things for the sake of experiencing them and broadening horizons and, and hopefully gaining some clarity. And to me, psychedelics are a uniquely powerful tool because they do shift consciousness in a fundamental way that nothing else does. Mm. There's, um, there's Sam Harris that says that, that if, if he could wish anything on all adults is to every adult to have at least one experience with psychedelics at some point during their lifetime. And yeah. um, there's definitely a case for any world leaders. I think I've heard you say that on a podcast before <laughs> about every world leader needs to have a, like a combination, like a cocktail of psychedelics <laughs> just before they get in charge, just increase their compassion levels. <laughs> it's, it sounds like something I would say. And I, I, I do believe that. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not someone who thinks everyone should use psychedelics, but I do believe that most people um, who are in a relatively stable place in their life circumstances and psychologically will benefit from psychedelics. Mm. Um, I do believe, to put it as bluntly as I can, if it, let me put it this way, if everyone used psychedelics, I think there'd be some people who would absolutely be harmed by the experience, no question. But I think the vast majority of people would be helped by the experience. And I do think the world would be a better place. The caveat though is, you know, ideally the way this stuff was used has been used traditionally in all sorts of indigenous cultures hasn't been some guy handing you a foil wrapper with some psychedelics in a parking lot and you going in <laughs> doing it, you know, on no. your own. It's embedded in some sort of ceremonial context and it's part of the culture itself. Like in Peru, I don't know if this is uh, the Shipibo, um people who that that's where I've drank ayahuasca with in, in Peru. It's common that a family will drink ayahuasca together. You'll have a grandmother and, and children and parents, and it's wow. just part of the culture. And one, it normalizes it, but two, it gives you a support structure so that the next day, you know, you're talking about your experiences with the people who you live with and spend your time with. So point being that I think one thing that can ensure better outcomes is having structures and best practices and all of that, that we don't currently have widespread in, in, in our culture. However, yeah. even absent that stuff, I think people, I mean, my own experience is kind of a, um, an argument for this, that you can do psychedelics, quote unquote, the wrong way, not with proper support and still benefit. So yeah. So I do think, yeah, I, I think overall, most people will benefit from a psychedelic experience, but it is, as you said at the beginning, it's a very personal choice. Some people don't want to have these experiences. And of course, that that is entirely worthy of respect as well. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it's interesting. It's been, it's been great chatting with you. Um, I don't want to. Uh, I hope you're not going to be glued to the TV today on, on well you know I, I i scheduled this today partially because well i have some other stuff later this week but also i was like you know what i don't even want to be thinking about the election until the evening when there's actually some results because yeah. yeah you know talk talk about surrendering and not knowing what's going to happen next is <laughs> yeah today might be the perfect day uh, to yeah. uh <laughs> to take a trip but um where it, it could it could be i think for me it would be probably be too much yeah. <laughs> but, but for some people, yeah, we're uh, we're definitely it's definitely going to be a journey, one way or the other. Yeah, definitely. Well, look, Adam, I really appreciate your honest answers to questions and and the great insight that you've given to your journey with things um, as well. But where where can people find you if if they want to want more? Uh, right now, you can find me in my parents' basement. That's where I. <laughs> No, it's. Uh, I actually am at their house right now, but I'm in their attic, so it's a little better. That's all right. <laughs> Gone up in the world. <laughs> I've, been, I've been here for. It's been. It's. It's. You know what? It's been kind of a psychedelic journey itself. Because I've been here for a couple of months. Because I came from California to see them. I was going to go back. Then Northern California effectively caught on fire. So I. I yes. <laughs> but oh, it's mad, crazy year. Yeah, it really is. But it, it has been, you know, living one, with one's parents at my age is, is itself an exercise in surrender and letting go. And it's actually been mm. uh, powerful in some ways and, and helpful. But um, no, but on online, um, Instagram is Adam Strauss with at A-T-O-M-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. Twitter is the same. Facebook, if you Google, find me, search me on Facebook, you'll probably find it. And then the Mushroom Cure dot com and adamstrauss.com are the main uh the main websites so uh yeah and you know it's an exciting time for this movement where there's just so much happening so quickly so yeah, happy to talk about this stuff yeah perfect well thank you very much for coming on i'll press stop Andy. well any final words actually no well th- thank you for having me i've really enjoyed this conversation and it's it's uh any final words? Um, yeah, I'm not going to kill no, you. you know, I I, it's, it's, a, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot of pressure, but I, I would say um, no. I just I, I'd encourage people. I think with psychedelics and life in general, not that I'm an authority on either of those things, but to uh, yeah, find their own way with this stuff because I I don't think. I remember I heard a I heard Graham Hancock. I think it was on Joe Rogan a few years ago, and he was one of these people who was saying you know, the only way you should do psychedelics is like with a shaman and in ceremony. Mm-hmm. And it really annoyed me because I was like, well, that's the way you've done it and yes. it's worked for you. But I think there is a risk with psychedelics where they can be very mind opening, but then sometimes they can encourage this mindset with, oh, I've kind of figured it out and I know the right way now. So I always am careful to hold myself out as, you know, I'm not an authority. I'm one guy who's, use psychedelics in certain contexts for to try to help myself but i think this is something in life in general but especially with psychedelics i would say there is no ultimate authority but we do have the ability to change our conscious experience of life and i think that's a powerful thing not to be taken lightly but something that can be um profoundly helpful for many people yeah yeah definitely well thank you very much for that yeah thank you Well, thank you very much for listening to that episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was as interesting for you to listen to as it was for me to record. Um, Like I said, you can find Adam on 
Instagram. That is Atom Strauss. Atom, A-T-O-M, Strauss with two S's at the end. And it is the same on Twitter. But just chuck an extra S on the end there. I'll put a link to his socials in the description below. But if you wanted to have a look at the book that we were talking about there, the book was How to Change Your Mind. So that'll be an introduction to essentially what a psychedelic could do for you. It's by Michael Pollan. Um, Adam obviously said that that was a friend of his. It's a book that I've got at home out of pure interest. I haven't gone too far into it. And the other book that I was talking about was The Immortality Key. That's something that I've been listening to. Um, it's just really, really stat heavy. Um, but The Immortality Key is by Brian C. M-U-R-A-R-E-S-K-U, which to me is Murasaki, and I could be wrong there, but that is a fascinating book um, about the sort of psychedelics role in the origins of religion. Um, or if you can't bother to get the book, the episode with him, Joe Rogan, and Graham Hancock was amazing. It was probably the most interesting three hours of my year so far. But that is it from me. Thank you very, very much for listening. I'll be back with a few book reviews. I've uh, been just finished off a brilliant book um, which you'll be hearing from soon but if it's your first time here give us a follow on Instagram it's at a need to read with the number two and not the word um, but if you've been here for a while then I hope you're alright take it easy, love you, bye <laughs>